Who is wise? The one who learns from others. Join me on a journey where I speak to Jewish women from all different backgrounds, each sharing their own stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Corin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Soul Sessions. I'm your host, KK, and I'm really excited to present my next guest to you. We first met each other in our early 20s at the JEC, the Jewish Enrichment Center. I remember her as Kate. We then reunited when we were both working for Aisha Torah's New York office. This time, she didn't go by Kate, but she went by Kayla, and she was married. Today, Kayla Levin is a marriage coach, and her specialty is newlyweds. She coaches women and couples in a one-on-one and group setting. She also offers virtual courses so that everyone across the world can have access to her wisdom and gain practical techniques to make their marriage great. Kayla is a podcast host herself, And you can find her podcast by searching First Year Married on your podcast player. Today, Kayla lives in Israel with her husband and four children. I urge you to listen to her fascinating life story. There is much more to her than what meets the eye. I really look forward to hearing your comments. But first, a word from our sponsor. Life is busy. In the hustle and bustle of life, it's easy to forget about what's important. Between work, school, family life, and all the other details involved in living, it's hard to keep track of what matters in life. It's hard to remember to live with intention and true connection and meaning. So how can we help live a more meaningful life amongst the busyness? Take time to write your thoughts and plan for what's important to you. Take time to find meaning in even the ordinary moments of life. The Mindful Moments Planner was created with a Jewish woman in mind. It was created to help empower us to connect and focus on what really matters in life. The Mindful Moments Planner has space to help you reflect and plan for a busy life, but a focused life. It's created to help you take time out of your life each month, week, and day to set goals and reflect on how to live as your best self. With the Mindful Moments Planner, take time to focus your thoughts so you can live with intention instead of just living each day by your to-do list. And now, I'd love to introduce Kayla Levin. Hello, Kayla. It's such a pleasure to have you on Soul Sessions. So Kayla and I, we go way, way back. I'm talking like I don't know, 15 years ago, Kayla? Could that be? I don't know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> um, when we were young, when we were young. <laughs> Back in the day. Young, <laughs> I met Kayla first at the JEC, which was the Jewish Enrichment Center. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Kayla was working there at the JEC, and I met her, and she was wonderful. And I remember her as Kate. Seven years later or so, I was working at Aisha Torah in their New York office, and who comes to work at Aisha Torah? Kayla, Kayla Levin, <laughs> who I previously knew as Kate. Yep. And you are completely different. Um, when I first met you at the JEC, I didn't think 
I didn't even know you were Jewish. I saw you at Asha Torah. You were a completely different person. You were wearing a wig or, and your dress code was different and you were also married. Yes. So, yeah. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I mean, besides what you do, um, you know, but I feel like this was your process. This was the way yes. you have to encounter God. Yes, at for, the sure. Time. for sure. And it was interesting because, um, you know, stepping away, I remember so, so many things that I was really struggling with, you know, it's like, Hashem gives you the cure before the maca. Like I remember mm-hmm. sitting there in the adult education classes in my church and saying, I don't get it. If, if God is that important, shouldn't it impact like the way I eat? Shouldn't it impact the way I go through my whole day every day? And again, are there teachers out there who maybe could, could answer that possibly for, you know, for that religion? I'm not a spokesperson for Christianity, um, obviously, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the teacher that I had basically said, you know, here's a schedule of the different readings that you could read each day to stay connected. And I was like, this isn't right. There's, there's got to be something that's more immersive in our whole life. Not so surprised that I ended up <laughs> where I am today. You were taking these adult education classes and you knew already that you were Jewish. So yeah. did you want to sort of like encompass all your backgrounds and all the different types of religions to see what like made sense to you? So it's, it's, it's embarrassing that it took me so long to consider looking into Judaism. I mean, I really tried to let everything else that I could possibly get my hands on first. Um, until I was at a point where I was like going to church with my family, but I was leaving out. I, I knew the liturgy really well, right? Because we went all the time growing up. Um, and I, I had decided at that point that I had no problem with the Old Testament, but I didn't agree with anything in the New Testament. And I didn't believe in the whole Messiah concept. Mm-hmm. So um, I would very carefully pray the prayers that only referred to creation and God and forgiveness. And I would omit all the prayers that referred to JC, to mm-hmm. anything, the apostle, like anything there. I was, I was picking and choosing my way through the service, really just to have some kind of spiritual experience. And I think I did that for a good year and a half before I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and all this time you knew you were Jewish. Yeah. Yeah, this whole time I knew I was Jewish. And you know, I have to, I have to think, I had one friend who was, she would always say to me, like, because I told her my story, and she would always say, like, before, before Passover, before Yom Kippur, she would always say, you want to come to Miami? Like, you're Jewish, you should do Passover, or see if you can get a cedar. And even though it was years and years and years before I finally got up the courage to go, it was really that persistent, sweet voice of just you should just know this is who you are and you have a right to it. Like you have a claim to this and, and you can check it out that I think ultimately mm-hmm. got me there. Then yeah. until my second year of college that I finally got up the courage to walk into Hillel. I mean, I was convinced that it was going to be just the most uncomfortable, embarrassing, horrific experience ever. <laughs> totally convinced. Yeah. And one of these people that like, um, I was, my, my attitude was kind of like, look guys, if this is a club, you know, if I'm not really supposed to be here, like I didn't do about mitzvah. I don't know. I'm not, people would always say to me later, like, I'm not a good Jew. Like I kind of had that perspective. Like, I don't know anything. I'm not a good Jew. And it was really mm-hmm. just those people who knew Judaism from a more traditional perspective that would just sort of say to me, like, no, it doesn't matter. You are, you are, you do belong here. And then I finally kind of was able to go and, and check it out for myself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am Kate slash Kayla Levin. I'm happy to go by both. 
Um, <laughs> and I, right now, yeah, as you said, I'm a marriage coach. I live in Ramape Shemesh as of three months ago, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm married. We've married. We just had our 10 year anniversary at the beginning of the summer. So, thank you. So, 10 years yeah. married, and um, we have Nainahara, four kids. And yeah, that's on one foot. <laughs> Can you? That's really interesting because you are not originally from Ramat Shemesh, Israel. You moved there three months ago. Can you give us a little background? I know you have a really interesting and non traditional story on how you actually became more observant and how you discovered Judaism. Yes. Can you please share that with our listeners? Sure, sure. So my family would be the poster children for intermarriage. <laughs> if any Jewish okay. family ever intermarried so well, we joke that that was our Masorah to, to marry out. Wow. I, I, I found out that I was Jewish when I was 12. We no didn't, way. yeah, we didn't even know. Um, my mother had grown up with kind of whispers around the table and people would would ask about it. Wait, what's this thing about us being Jewish? And then it would get shushed up and then everyone would be uncomfortable and then they would change the topic. And why was it hushed up? Why, why weren't they talking about it? There's a couple different opinions. You know, it's, we're already going back a while, so it's hard to, to place it exactly. But we know that a big amount, a big section of the family converted to evangelical Christianity. So there's mm -hmm. the possibility that it was just, you know, that's not what we are with this other thing. But um, my great grandmother was running away from Poland. Um, she actually ran away before World War II and she intermarried. And from what we hear from, you know, my grandmother was one of, I think like 14 kids. And she, some of those kids got more of the story and some got less. And she was definitely on the less end of the spectrum. And oh, as, yeah, as we started researching it and looking into it, we found out from, um, from other cousins that, you know, she really thought that like, you know, the Jews were going to lose the war and that they needed to hide their identity, hide everything that could track them back to being Jewish. Um, and how did you, I mean, how did you find out your mother disclosed it to you? Like how so did my, that happen? Right. So my mother didn't really know. My grandmother, I guess, growing up would joke about it, you know, oh, so Jewish of us or something like that. But even she really didn't know. I don't think she could have said, you know, certainly that she was Jewish, but my mother was in Canada, which is where she's from. And they were visiting the grave of her grandmother, my great grandmother. And her cousin just started saying, you know, he just started spilling the beans. Here's her story. Here's everything about her. And my mom was just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And then, <sighs> yeah. And so she came back and she, I don't know, you know, exactly her thought process, but she decided to take, you know, this, I think it was like a one night workshop, Judaism for people who don't know anything about it type of thing. And oh um, my. yeah, she spoke to the rabbi and the rabbi heard the whole story. And he said, well, just so that you know, like, according to all Jews, there is a concept of matrilineal heritage. And when you trace it up, you're going straight up the women. So wow. according to Jews, and that's what my mom said when she came home, she said, you know, honey, you don't have to do anything about this. Just know that according to Jews, you're Jewish. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> how did you take, like, how did you take that information and how did it impact your family life? So I think initially I really took it like any 12 year old would, which was, oh, that's cool. I'm Jewish too. Like, you know, we were very interested in 
I'm Scottish and I have some English and I have some Irish and oh, so we'll add Jewish. You know, like it was just added mm-hmm. into the to the melting pot of who we were. Um, mm-hmm. But we were a pretty serious family when it came to religion. It was something that we discussed a lot. My father actually has a master's in divinity from a, a seminary, a Christian seminary in the Boston area. So we, we spoke about it. And so the message that I really got from my parents was that God is important and relevant to our life. And so as a kid, when I had questions, that was my, my natural reaction was to go to the church to find answers. And somewhere around mm-hmm. middle school, I started taking adult education classes because I felt like the, what was being offered to kids wasn't sophisticated enough. And I started to, um, to have some real questions with the, the philosophy that I was being presented with. Um, you know, I kind of, at one point, just said, that's it. Like this, I really don't. I also had like a big shift because I started in Boston and I moved to Orlando. And the nature of Christianity in those two areas of the country is very different. So I kind of had to wrap my head around, wait, these people who are totally different than me, because I was raised in a really liberal, you know, very accepting home. And then I moved to the South where, you know, it's not across the board, but in general, it's much more like, here are the rules, you got to stick to them and we'll pray for you if you don't. And that was like, this is not, what are we doing? This is not comfortable. And so I think between that, the cultural shift and also the, the education, there was a point where I was like, this is just not for me. This is, I don't, I don't believe it. And um, I took out, you know, I changed, you know, my, my official heading changed from Christian to agnostic, right? Which was essentially, if you think you know, then you're crazy. (laughs) How could any human being possibly know? There's no way to know. And that's really the only, the only real truth is that none of us know. And that was my philosophy for a little while. From a young age, you had like such a good head on your shoulders and you kind of like, you did what you wanted to do and you had your own search. I mean, I I was very normal and crazy in almost every other area. (laughs) Let's just be (laughs) realistic here. But with this, you, you were really, you know, you showed independence and that Mm. you were searching for your truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very much the message I got from my parents was you know, this is important. This is important. It's, it's worth spending some time researching. It's worth looking into. Does your husband have a similar experience to you? No, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, my husband's mother is Sparty Israeli. Uh, he's them with like a lot of, you know, Yerush Shemayim and like just, right. you know, the home was kosher. They're very traditional. I think they actually became more traditional as he was getting older. But by the time he was really noticing what was going on. They were keeping kosher. Mm-hmm. They were doing Kiddush on Friday night. Um, so, you know, we were similar in that we were both raised in homes where there was kind of a presence of Hashem, right? But mm-hmm. he was really from a very, he was like a president of USY for his region. He was very, very involved Jewishly, a very strong Jewish identity. I think that's part of what attracted you to him, correct? Yeah, like, I mean. The fact that he was so passionate. It's really interesting because, um, Shortly before I met him, I decided that four generations of intermarriage was enough for one family, and I was only going to date Jewish guys. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, and so that, and then I had decided that I wasn't quite ready to take on only eating kosher meat, but that I was going to take every opportunity that I could. And it ended up being that the reason that we met, part of the whole way it played out, was that when we were at this event, this Welcome Week event, and it was in the Upper West Side, everyone decided to go out for food because we Mm -hmm. were in the Upper West Side, so there was kosher food. And 
my husband and I both had the same thought process of everyone is dividing, you know, meat and dairy. And we were both like, well, kosher dairy is redundant. Dairy is already kosher as far as we were concerned at that point. So let's go get some meat, right? So we both went to the meat restaurant and it wasn't until everyone had completely split up and was like a block away that I realized I was the only girl that had chosen meat. They'd all gone for pizza. And so then I'm looking around and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't know any of these guys. This is really embarrassing. It's too late now to just like leave. Um, mm-hmm. and that's when he started talking to me. So I feel like Hashem really, you know, my husband was a gift because I had made these two commitments and it was really through these two tiny commitments till so early on in my journey that wow. I met him. It just shows like from your story, uh, how you met your husband, that the choices we make and the commitments we make from those choices, how it really has a ripple effect on yeah. everything else. And it wasn't it really even like, even this meat one, it wasn't even like I was saying, like, I'm keeping kosher forever or anything big or even that hard. It was just, I'm going to make a focus on like taking the opportunity when I can, like as much as I can, you know, it was a very mm-hmm. appropriate step for where I was in my journey. And mm-hmm. you no, know, I think sometimes we think if it's not like some big, loud and proud, major right. public thing that there's nothing to it, but I don't, I don't agree. I think that being really authentic with ourselves and knowing like, what's my next step I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that gives Hashem some It doesn't have to be broadcasted to the world. Right. Yeah. Right. It can be very yeah. private and very small and very just appropriate for where you are and what you're ready for. As long as you have intention. I feel like you had a lot of intention with everything that you did. And you weren't doing it for, as you said, like the praise and the claps and, oh, look at her. Or, look how Jewish she is. Like you really were, mamash, you were intentional with everything that you were doing. Judaism is not like bland and boring and just routine it's Mm -hmm. vibrant and you have a you have a continued search like Mm -hmm. you you haven't stopped that's very true (laughs) you know like I see it the way you talk and you get Judaism and do you feel like people who just had it their entire life they don't have that as much as opposed to a Bapishuva like you yeah I mean I think we all have our own flavor right and I think there's something so stunning about a person who was just raised knowing this is true. And I think there are things that are possible for that person that aren't going to be as possible for me. Um, you know, and people always say to me, like, are, isn't it awkward for you? You're raising your children in a whole world and a whole educational system that you didn't go through yourself. And I feel like, no, like the big part of the reason yeah. I went through all this was so that they could continue up the mountain from where I'm leaving off. You know, like I got them here so they could continue. Um, you know, so I think we're all meant to have our own flavor and what we contribute. And I, I I would hesitate to say that has so much more, you know, to contribute, but something different for sure. Yeah. Something different for sure. So tell us, okay. So you got married with your husband 10 years ago. I actually spent a year in Israel before we got married. Oh, okay. That's key. Yeah. Okay. So why did you guys decide to move to Israel? So I decided <laughs> to go and I hoped he would join me. Um, wow. You know, I really felt like as I was sort of looking more and more into Judaism, I was kind of trying to see, okay, so what, what's, what exists inside the Jewish worldview and what am I missing, right? So that was a big part of when I went on birthright. I was like, I have no relationship mm-hmm. with Israel. Like we never talked about Israel growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone that I know that's Jewish, they have some kind of relationship. They have feelings, they have opinions. So I need to go. So I went on birthright. Um, but I also felt that 
you know, at this point, we were committed to having a Jewish home. Um, mm-hmm. but that was very loosely defined. And we were going for Shabbat meals a lot when we were in college. We went to Passaic. We became very close with certain families there. And we mm-hmm. really were very taken. We were, you know, really like this one was heart first. When we saw these families, when we saw the way the parents were interacting with the children, when we saw the way the children were acting, little mm-hmm. experiences, we definitely had a value of it, but we weren't really sure we were ready to go all in, be Shomer Shabbos, live in a community like this. We didn't know where we were going to land. And I just felt like I'm still, the, I'm still lacking so much information. I can't create a Jewish home and be illiterate. I need to go and I need to learn. And so knowing that at this point we were very serious about our relationship, I said, I think what I need to do is I need to spend a year in Israel. And this slowly morphed from like, let's be on a kibbutz and learn Hebrew to like, let's go to like some, you know, male, female learning programs to like, Mm -hmm. hey, honey, I'm going to go to an all girls school and you can go to an all guys school and see you later. (laughs) Um, And, you know, thank God he eventually like came along for the ride. He had his own journey and his own Rebbeim who were amazing and inspiring. And I think those relationships really propelled him in his own growth. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so that was a big piece. And also I felt like I had never been in a situation. I wasn't in a sorority in college. They're not big at NYU. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be nice to go and, and spend time with a bunch of women, like really have like a sisterhood, have strong female friendships. Mm-hmm. That's not something I really felt like I had a lot of growing up. What would you say to couples who, let's say the girl has different passions in Judaism, you know, than her husband? Right. How can they make that work? Meaning I, the, the metaphor that I've always heard, which I really like, is you have to just look at the trajectory. Meaning, you know, if a, if a girl is growing and becoming more inspired and she meets someone who's more religious, but he's on the burnout scale and he's heading down, right? Mm-hmm. So then this isn't the right trajectory. But if she's inspired and she's growing and she meets someone else, whether he's a little bit further ahead or further behind, and it's not linear. I mean, we all grow in different areas at different times, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but right. both moving in a forward direction. And I think doing it from a place of like openness and, and not cynicism, um, then I think, I think that's very promising. But I will say as a caveat to our story, because sometimes people hear this and they're like, what a fantastic solution to the shidduch crisis. I'll get a boyfriend and then we'll become religious, right? <laughs> and I would say mm-hmm. no. Like we definitely know a lot of couples that had a similar situation. They were dating. They went and they went to go learn. And you learn so much about yourself. And it wasn't such an easy year for us in our relationship. Very separate. I was in my school. He was in his school. We had very separate journeys. Um, and when we thought there was a conflict, to be honest, my husband lied to me outright. You know, I remember at one t- point coming to him and saying, I-, I don't know if I'm ready to give up my whole career as an actor. And I don't know if I want to do this hair covering thing. Mm-hmm. And what do you, you go to this school is with all these charedim, like if you're going to want to marry a lady who wears a shaitzel, like, what are we going to do? And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, I totally don't care what you do. My relationship with God has nothing to do with your, what you're doing. So wow. half of that was true. Wow. Half of that was true. My relationship to God has no, has no, you know, has nothing to do with what you're doing. Meaning that's true. He definitely believed that. That he had no preference was not true, but he knew that if he put any pressure on me, I could never have the mitzvah for myself. Mm. So he oh. lied and I'm grateful to him <laughs> that he did. Uh. You know, because then I never felt like, oh, I have to keep this guy. I love him so much. I'm going to just deal with it and cover my hair. But actually, I ended up covering my hair as an independent choice for myself. So 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, that again, our, our journeys were in some ways so separate and so individual, even though we were going through it together. That's so interesting. And it also shows that the person who you meet like 10 years ago is not going to be the same person <laughs> two years down the line, five years down the right. line. Not that like we're going to change that person's, oh, you're going to change. You're going to change in the marriage. But people naturally just, I think, they evolve if they have the right mm-hmm. people who have their head in the game and they have the right mindset. They do eventually evolve. Like my husband is not the same. He doesn't have the same ideas that he did when we first got married. He has totally evolved in his Judaism and, you know, his personal growth. Right. And why did you decide to become a marriage coach and specifically, I believe, for newlyweds? Yes. Um, Well, the truth is I was a life coach for a while, um, probably Mm -hmm. maybe four years or so. Um, and I was a generic life coach. I, I originally was going to go for my MSW. I was even, you know, enrolled and ready to go. And then, um, and then I was expecting my first child and she was due exactly the first day of final exams first semester. And so I oh said, this is crazy. I'll just push it off for a year. I'm going to defer for a year. I'll go back for the MSW the following semester, or the following year. And we ended up moving out of Passaic and we moved to Atlanta that year. So I couldn't defer. I didn't want to do that commute. <laughs> that firsthand about it more deeply, I realized that although I've always wanted um, a master's degree, I really wanted the work of a life coach. I really enjoy working with people who they're highly functioning and they're still struggling. Um, I think that's a fascinating place to be. And so as a generic life coach, I was doing a lot of helping people with parenting, with weight loss, with business, with time management, um, just troubleshooting daily problems. And that was fine. but when I started doing some more advanced training, I started to answer some, or not answer really, but start to coach my clients more on their marriages. And mm-hmm. it turned out that because I had had a very challenging Shana Rishona first year of marriage, I Your Shana really, Rishona was in Passaic? Yeah, 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 yeah mm-hmm. in Passaic, yeah. Thank God we had an amazing network. Um, it was only challenging because my, my head was very um a very dramatic and scary place to be at the time thank god Mm -hmm. nothing so much was going on you know externally it was really my internal struggle my parents ended up divorcing um at that time no before when i was younger but they were married for 24 years and i'd never seen them fight and so i made that mean for myself that really a marriage could just fall apart at any moment right that was kind of my like childish interpretation of what i'd seen so I went into marriage sure. like, this is terrifying. I mean, he's going to, I have to protect myself or I have to make him prove that he's serious. You know, I just was like, not again, mm-hmm. <laughs> my brain was a scary place to be that year. And, you were probably um, like trying to find something, maybe find a problem. Oh, testing him. Just- and I mean, come on. It was insane. Like, literally, we had one argument where he was like, why are you so upset? It's not like I'm going to divorce you. And I went into hysterics ah. and I said, I can't believe you used the word divorce. I was hysterical. And he was like, because mm-hmm. I'm saying I'm not divorcing you. Like I, I wasn't logical. I was so wrapped up in all my mind drama. And you know, today I can look back and see that what was really happening is that when we have a thought that's very heartbreaking and tragic, it hits us right in the gut. And mm-hmm. most of us think that when a thought hits us in the gut, it means that we've just like revealed this deep truth, right? 
Oh my gosh, that's so true. But really all that was happening was I desperately wanted to stay married to this guy that I was so in love with. And so just any imagination of like this not working out would hit me in the gut because it's not what I wanted. Right. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So I just thought like all these thoughts must be true because I'm having them. (laughs) And that's where I was. Right. So I very fortunately shifted at some point. I don't know exactly when that was, but I made a shift between from, you know, marriage could fall apart at any moment and there's no way to know to marriage is a skill and you have to learn what to do. And And marriage is a skill. That's interesting. Yeah. And so never with an intention to teach this material because I was such a hot mess. No one would listen to me about marriage for sure. I went and researched and learned and took every shell and bias class. I mean, to the point where, you know, Rabbi Tatz was like, stop listening to my marriage class. You guys have heard it enough. You can quote it verbatim, you know, and it, it, I remember going to our rabbi and saying, I mean, come on, at this point, I've been to every single Shalom Bias class. I don't know what to do because I already know what they're going to say before they say it. And he was like, it's time to move on. You know, maybe you should take some parenting classes now, like move on. Because I just became obsessed with learning the secular, the Jewish, every piece of literature I could get my hands on to understand better. And the more that I learned, the more I saw how true it was that, oh my gosh, wait, I... I really thought this is why my husband was doing this, but I was wrong. It's because of this. Wait, this whole fight we were having just dissolved because I just misunderstood him. And so I, it's very yeah. addictive when you start to get that material because you're like, my whole life is just getting easier and easier you know, before my eyes. Changing your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part wow. of it, but it's a lot easier to change it when you find out that this is something that's true for most men or this mm-hmm, is a misconception mm-hmm. that most couples have or you know, any of those things. Right. That also helps a lot. So, it's like when um, you understand their like love language in a way. Yeah. And yeah. you know what they're all about, how their brains work. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I would say like for that mm-hmm. one, for the love language, it's more the opposite, meaning, you know, my husband doesn't give me gifts, but then I realize, wait a second, he always likes someone to clean the house. So when he cleans the house, mm-hmm. he's showing me he loves me. Mm-hmm. Right? I actually have mm-hmm. a podcast episode called The Love Language is Trap because sometimes people use this material to feel worse about their marriage. But um interesting yeah yeah Yeah, sorry back on track yeah yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah so basically when my clients started to talk to me about their marriages and I would say okay I'm coaching and I'd say can I take off my coach hat for a second and just share some information with you that I learned and then I would and it would just blow their mind the same way it blew my mind and then Mm -hmm. they would start coaching with me one-on-one and we would really dive through the material and I just had so much to share because I knew what had worked for me and what had you know, resonated and also what I'd seen in a lot of different places in the research and eventually got to a point where I said, well, this is very inefficient. I, I already know like what the main pieces that somebody needs are. So let me put this together into a course. So instead of like working with me one-on-one and we're pulling out the pieces, you know, in sort of this disorganized fashion, let's get all the material mm-hmm. there. And then in general, what I do is I coach women once they've finished the course. So now they have all that material, but it's more implementation. Mm, that's so interesting. So you per- first provide a course. It's like how many classes are in this course? Six classes. Six classes. And then once they're done with these six classes, which is like very, a lot of material, is that's when you go into the coaching where it's more personal. Right. Is that what you do? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, do you wish you had like something like your course when you just got married? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that's really like, that was, that was how we designed the whole thing, right? It was like, what did I need? Mm-hmm. What, what did it take me 10 years to put piece together? You know, and I think it's tricky because I think, you know, when people have kids, 
they figure out pretty quickly that they need to have a mentor, they need to ask questions, they need to take a class. Um, but when we get married, we don't have that attitude. You know, if it's not working, no. we're like, it's maybe it's the wrong guy, or maybe we're broken, or maybe, you know, I don't know, but there's, it's I, never I like, oh, I didn't learn also. how to do this. It's shame. Yeah, it's very hard. It'd be much, I would be, it would be much easier for me to be a parenting coach by far. People are so much more comfortable showing up to a parenting class of course. <laughs> than a marriage class. Yeah, like people don't want to show that they have shalom, they have any shalom bite issues. There's a lot of shame and stigma around that. But like, oh, that you like yell at your kids. That's something that people are more comfortable being public about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But you know, it's a shame because I think, you know, I see what happens with my clients and I see that they do this material. Our marriages are so, there's so much potential for personal growth inside your marriage. And I would, mm-hmm. I would argue more so than in your parenting. And, um, and I think mm-hmm. that, when, that when you do that work, like I see what happens with my clients, they go and they do the work on their marriage and then they get a promotion or they go and they do the work on their marriage and they lose weight that they've been struggling to lose because the, the work that they did on their self, now it, it's, it's, it goes everywhere, right? It's relevant to every piece of their life. So all these other pieces, they can start to knock it down because they gain the skills that they were, mm-hmm. you know, these things show up everywhere, right? If you have a problem in one area, you're going to have similar things everywhere. Uh, you, you speak a lot about a lot about this and more in your course and in your podcast. So yeah. definitely check it out. Yeah, okay, you don't so, have to be in your first year of marriage to listen, by the way, of people all the way from high school oh, up through point. more than 20 years married that are listening to the podcast. And I love it. Yes, 100%. Um, you now live in Israel. Yes. You just recently made Haliyah. Very Israel. now. That's, yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Like, incredible. How, how did you guys decide to make this huge move? Hmm. I mean, this is not just going to Atlanta, Georgia. Like, right. just moving from New York to, like, New Jersey would be a huge move for me. So, like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some guys? ways, I'd say, like, 90% of this move has been about as hard as moving from Atlanta to Passaic. That was a really hard move. I mean, Passaic to Atlanta was also very hard. Um, yeah, any move is hard. Any move is hard. Yeah, any real move is hard. So, so I, I why did you guys perfect, decide to do this? Yeah, I wish I had like a perfect, like on one foot. What I could say is I, I really left Israel kicking and screaming um, when we got married. <laughs> and we, mm-hmm. we really always wanted to come back. Every year we sat down with our rabbi and we said, now can we go? Now can we go? What do you think? And every year mm-hmm. the rabbi said, you know, like, I'm not telling you no, but this is a concern. This is a, you should look at this. You should work on this. You know, in the very beginning, it was like, you guys, no, you can't go. You will destroy your marriage. And he was absolutely right because we had zero skills, zero Hebrew. I mean, we had nothing and we had zero marriage. You know, we just gotten married. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, eventually my husband's job shifted and we had actually literally just closed the book. We had just decided, okay, that was our deadline for how old our kids are six months earlier. So we met with the rabbi and we said, okay, so we're going to Oh, you had a deadline. Oh yeah. We said when my daughter's going into second grade. Um, And we, we sat down and we said, okay, so we're going to switch to the retirement plan. Like when the last kid goes to yeshiva and seminary, we're going to go then. Is that a good plan? The rabbi said, yes. And we like closed the book, right? Um, Six months later, my job, my husband's job shifted. And all of a sudden he had this light bulb moment of we could totally move to Israel. We should totally move to Israel. And I was like, wait a second. Oh my God. (laughs) I pushed for 10 years for this. Like, I don't know if I'm ready. I stopped wanting this. Like I got comfortable, you know? Um, Yeah. 
but I think it really came sure. down to in a big way of, you know, this is, this is really where we feel is our home as Jewish people. And, um, mm -hmm. everything is more intense here, but it's more intense on both sides of the spectrum, you know? And, and what's um, so the way I described it when I left Israel and I was like, so, so depressed when I left Israel the first time, um, was it felt like I had my whole life. This is, this is how I experienced this. So some people listening are going to resonate, you know, this will resonate and some not, and that's okay. I don't mean to say this is how it should feel, but my experience was I felt as if I'd been living inside a, a black and white television my whole life. You know, you watch a black and white movie, you don't even notice that there's no color. And mm -hmm. then someone had suddenly plugged in Technicolor, like all the color had shown up on the screen. And I'd lived like that for a year. And then someone <laughs> unplugged it and I went back to black and white. You know, wow. when I was in Israel, it was a hard year. It was very, very intense, you know, especially when you're, when you're about Shuva and you're questioning and growing and all this stuff. It's an intense year, but it was in color. And I felt like, you know, in Israel, if you need $11 and 15 cents, Hashem gets you $11 and 15 cents. If you're in America, you get 15 <laughs> bucks, you know, or like $10. Like in Israel, you get it. It's just, Hashem is just communicating with you directly all the time. It's just amazing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I just, once he was like, I think we could do this. I think we should try. And I was like, all right, <laughs> let's go. All right. Yeah. yeah. Let's just pack our entire life and yeah. move to another country. Yeah. And I mean, you're there for three months now. What's it like? Can you tell us what you love about Israel and what you are having a difficult time with in Israel? Right. So full disclosure, my Hebrew is terrible, right? When I was trying to explain to my daughter's teacher why we were late, I almost said to her that we ate a wedding yesterday. So <laughs> that's, you know, like I'm really struggling in that area. And we're in Ulpan, which is, you know, a very big time commitment with four young kids and a business. Like, it's not that's not yeah. easy. Um, mm -hmm. So, so like there's technical things which I feel like are to me the easiest way to phrase them is to just remind myself that I'm an immigrant. You know, that as mm -hmm. much as this is our home, I'm also an immigrant and I don't speak the language and and they shouldn't speak English. <laughs> I right, don't think right. I don't think they should all know how to speak English and I don't think that they should all run their supermarkets the way that we run the supermarkets in the states. And so I'm an immigrant, so that means that part of my job is to learn the ropes and. Um, you know, and so that, that sometimes can be hard. Like, you know, if you're trying to communicate and it feels very urgent and you can't, um, it's very mm -hmm. humbling. It's very humbling and it can be very frustrating and overwhelming. Um, with that said, I think when I, I feel like we're, we're in holy soil over here, I really see the yeah. difference already in three months, the way my husband is connecting to his Torah learning, the way my children are respecting it, the way that my children are like, you know, used to be that I had a hard time teaching them that if a chumash fell on the floor, you had to quickly pick it up and, and put it away. And now oh. it's not a question. Like they see it they, immediately. It's, there's, it's just more like in the air, I feel like. And um, you know, we couldn't find our kids one Shabbos and we found them saying to Hillam with a lady on the street. <laughs> you know, it's oh, like, my. you don't you right. know, experience this kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's because you're also in Ramat Shemesh. I mean, if you were living in Tel Aviv, that would probably be another sure. story. Or am I wrong? For sure. No, for sure. For sure. It's true. I mean, and then also in Ramabe Jemish, the landing is much softer, right? My husband, mm -hmm. our rub speaks English. When my daughter, we got here, mm. she broke her leg within like a couple days. And, you know, the doctor was an Anglo. And so even though he does speak Hebrew, he spoke to us in English. That definitely helped. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. I think that was part of our, our decision was, you know what, like we could, we believe there's a mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. Um, mm -hmm. we think it's very good to integrate 
but there isn't a specific mitzvah to be Israeli, right? And so we mm -hmm. have to judge for ourselves, like what's healthy, how much can we push ourselves before maybe it's too much? And the mm -hmm. truth is, you know, we're seeing as so many Jews are coming to Israel now. I don't know what the situation is going to be when my kids are older and if they'll be integrated enough or if that will even matter because everyone's here already, you know, so right. we're just kind of saying right. what, what can we offer our children is we can offer them a childhood filled with Kedusha where the parents are happy and fulfilled and feel like they're where they're meant to be. And I think that's the best bet I've got for my kids right now. That's incredible. Can you tell us any advice that you would give to people who are thinking about it, like me? <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Come, we have a guest room. Now, come visit. <laughs> um, sure. I think talking to people who had moved was very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, this is really funny, but I would say whether it's through me or through Brooke Castillo, I would say learn the thought work, actually. Um, Learn the thought work? Yeah, the thought work that I was talking about before. My husband says to me repeatedly that if he hadn't learned thought work, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm. Um, but when we're okay. in a difficult situation, again, knowing I'm really overwhelmed, but I'm also overwhelmed because I think X, Y, Z, you know, just knowing that actually has made it a lot, a lot more doable. Um, mm -hmm. So what else would I say? I would say for sure going on the pilot trip was very helpful. I would say if you need to work on your Hebrew, my husband worked with like on Duolingo every single day before we mm -hmm. came. And he like is a much higher level in Ulpan than I am. And I don't know if that would have mm -hmm. been the case if it hadn't been for it. It really is helpful. So just having that, sure. you know, having that extra, that extra Hebrew goes a long way. And, you know, everyone has Do to you feel like you need situation. to have like very thick skin. Neither of us have thick skin. You, you guys don't have thick skin? No. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> like I find that when I go to Israel, I end up like, I end up like arguing. That's is great. <laughs> See, you can do it. That's wonderful. <laughs> no, like I don't take it. Like I remember one time I was waiting on the supermarket line and I literally like the person left right in front of me and I was literally just about to move and this woman pushed me. She's like, Zonday! I was like, excuse, I turned around. I'm like, excuse excuse me i'm like my best manners yeah there's a way to talk and my husband's like karen, karen don't, you don't have to fight back with them i'm like no they have to learn they're like no this is the way they are this is like their culture i mean do you agree or disagree is that I, mean, like I think they both work meaning i think that if i want to get into an argument with someone and see if it works sometimes it works you know sometimes that works and they just want to see like are you going to let me in or not and um, sometimes I'm like, that's not worth it, you know? And then I remember before we came, I said, worst case scenario, I'm, if I have to cry, I'll just cry. And they're just going to have right. to deal with me crying. Like they're just, and it's going to make them uncomfortable. But if like, I'm in a situation where I'm so overwhelmed that I started to cry, then that's their problem. And I'll just cry while I'm doing whatever I need to do. <laughs> there is like a program that teaches about Anglo culture to Israelis, you know? Right. To teach them like, this is how they are. This is how you have to be with them. This is how you say please and thank you, you know? But again, like, you know, they're not the immigrants. Right, right. You know? We have, we have to learn to be more like them. Or we just accept it, meaning, right? It's okay, they're not going to say please and thank you. So, like, I got yelled at because, like, my gro I, I, order my, my, I ordered, I don't know if I'll keep doing this, but I ordered my groceries online, and they brought too many bags, and they were mad at me for not knowing, like, which ones they weren't supposed to bring. 
Oh my God. So like, okay. So I could say to them, it's not my problem. It's your problem. Or I could like say, you need to learn to do your job better. Or I could just be like, this is hilarious. Well, yeah, you know, process you're talking about. What do I want to choose? Yeah, I'm not going to change them. So, Kate, let's we're going to take a different road here, and also we're almost with time right now. But um, I want you to tell our listeners about something you went through last year. You went through a major health crisis. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, about what happened. So thank God everything's fine. I'll start, <laughs> remove the drama from the beginning. I don't need anyone uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but what I have, Baruch Hashem, four children. And with each child, I had increasingly difficult to manage gestational diabetes. And um, looking back, we can see that the writing is on the wall. But generally, the way that gestational diabetes is treated is that if your blood sugar remains high, you probably got type 2 which type one and type two diabetes are very different diseases. They cause some of the same problems, but they're, they're very different in terms of what's actually happening. Um, what we realized quite a while after the fact of my last child was born and I was feeling really sick. And since I knew that blood sugar was something that I knew how I felt when I had high blood sugar because of gestational diabetes, um, I checked my blood sugar and I saw it was very high. So I got mm-hmm. myself to a doctor. Unfortunately, I didn't get myself to the right doctor right away. By the time I really found the right person who said to me, you're crazy, you, you've lost all your weight, you, you know, are completely malnourished, she did blood work on me, I had no vitamins anywhere in my body, um, not none, but very so little. Yeah, and she said, you're obviously type one, so we're gonna run some blood work just to confirm it, but basically type one diabetes is the one that usually you see in children, Um, Mm -hmm. it's when your body has an autoimmune reaction. So the immune system attacks itself and the immune system attacks the cells that create insulin. So Mm -hmm. for a type one diabetic, you know, exercise helps just about as much as it helps anybody. Right. Um, but I would eat a rice cake and my blood sugar would be in the three hundreds. Like I couldn't eat anything. I could, I would eat chicken and green beans, like the lowest carb things I could find. And I, I, wow. I would, I couldn't, my body couldn't handle it. I was very, very high blood sugar. Um, by the time I got finally to the endocrinologist, she told me I was very lucky. If I'd been two weeks later, I would have been hospitalized. But oh I, I got to her in time. But, you know, by the time I got there, I was, you know, people should know the symptoms. They should never have the situation. But my husband would get home from work and I would have to go to bed for the night, like at six o'clock. And I would, I would beg him starting at five. He works usually till like seven. I would start begging him, please come home. I have to sleep. I can't, I can't keep my eyes open. And I would just go to sleep and I didn't want to eat anything because I felt terrible whenever I ate. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm again, so thank God, like, that. yeah, thank God they, they figured out what I had. They diagnosed me. It was clearly type one because I had all these, I don't know, the way that they, they tested is very tricky because you can't really test for insulin. So I had to test for other things, but basically saw that I was producing very little insulin, which means um, type one. Um, mm-hmm. And so that all happens, like, right, my, actually just my, my diversity, my diabetes anniversary was November 1st. So this is only two days later. Oh. It's only been a year. But um, what was really the, again, like I think I said this earlier, the, the cure before the maca, you know, before the maca was that as this whole thing was going on, I was running a group coaching program. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been coaching on and off like one-on-one people, but the group coaching program was very immersive. I was creating classes for them and I was coaching in a group with them every single week and, you know, working on the material. And I was just completely living and breathing this stuff. 
And I remember mm-hmm. finding out everything about what was going on and, you know, what we were dealing with and realizing that I wanted to give myself space to make this mean whatever I wanted. I didn't, I, I made a conscious decision other than my husband. We didn't tell anybody for a while what was going on mm. because I, what I really didn't want was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Pity. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just the pity. I didn't want them telling me my story. Right. Mm. And people do it to mm-hmm. commiserate. It's not a bad thing to do, but I wasn't ready because I was in this place. It was almost like Hashem gave me this pause of like, here's everything that's happening. Now you can decide what it means before you deal with, like, you know, be- again, because my, so I was so involved in this work that like my, my, mm-hmm. felt like my brain was like very pliable at the moment, you know? And, wow, the um, thought work that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so that was really like the bracha, but I think also that was a big piece of of us sort of looking and, um, you know, on the one hand, unfortunately, insulin and diabetes is an issue that the United States healthcare system does not deal with very well. Um, there are right. some things that they do great, but unfortunately, for a person like me, I would die without insulin, right? I absolutely needed to live, and um, and it's it's they're making a lot of money on it, um, oh, so. Mm-hmm. So we kind of felt like, okay, you know what? Like you're complaining about the Israeli healthcare system, but we've got our complaints over here too. You know, it kind of in a way like helped ease the the way. And it also helped us see like, I think every time you have something really big like that happen, you're just kind of like, okay, we, um, uh, let me reassess everything, you know? And um, I think that sort of also played into the decision to move. Oh, it was a catalyst for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Kate, uh, I, told, I just called you Kate. You can call me Kate. <laughs> I just, Kate I or Kayla. It. My old people, awesome. you know, like my, yeah. Thank you for sharing that story with us because yeah. I feel like a lot of women who get diagnosed with something, whether it's big, medium, small, you know, um, I think a lot of people turn to victimhood. Or, you know, they want people to feel sorry for them. And you're here telling us that you're not allowing your type 1 diabetes to defeat you. And based on the thought work that you are teaching the world, you are applying it to your life. And it's helping you to, in a way, take charge of your your illness. I see yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's an interesting disease because on the one hand... You can't do anything to cause it, right? As far as anyone knows right now. So I definitely had this, you know, especially with gestational diabetes where I would walk in and I was like, you've got to be kidding me, people, right? Like I, I drink right. kale smoothies for breakfast. I'm, everyone makes fun of me. My favorite food is a salad. Like I actually enjoy But you did everything food. right. I'm do, yeah, like I'm the health nut. So what is this? Like I'm the one that gets diabetes and I'm sitting there watching my friends wolf down a bagel and I'm like, what is going on? Like this doesn't make any right. sense, right? Again, that's when I still thought that I was like, going down the type two diabetes track, which I guess would have been a little different. I don't know. But um, mm-hmm. the other piece is that I think that, you know, look, if you, if you have type one, like I do, so I'm now as of last week attached to an insulin pump, right? Like you need, every time you eat, you need insulin because your body doesn't produce it. So it's either a lifetime of taking shots whenever you eat or wearing a pump, like a little machine on you that delivers insulin to you your body. You have to wear it all day? Yeah. 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 I take it off the shower, you- but yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah. So, so, you know, like this is a good example of like, on the one hand, like I did spend some time, especially with gestational, I spent a lot of time with like 
how come my pregnancy is so much harder and I feel so terrible the whole time and like in that self-pity mode. But mm-hmm. in a way, this is also a disease that's very easy to feel positive about because it used to be a death sentence. Right? Say that again. It used to be a death sentence if somebody got this. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it wasn't that long ago that they didn't have insulin. And, you know, if I, even if I look back a little while, I wouldn't have an insulin pump. Right. So I've gone from having to give mm-hmm. myself shots every time I want to eat and having these crazy calculations to just putting in what I'm eating and then I'm done. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I don't, I don't know for every disease. I hope that people can all take a message, you know, of, of positivity, but um, this is an interesting one because I think that there, there is room for gratitude. Mm, beautiful. Really beautiful. Kayla, can you tell us um, some of your hopes and dreams for the world? Mashiach will be top of the list. Have yeah. a big one. Um, right. Oh my gosh. That's a big one. That's a big one. I, I mean, I can say from a very personal place in terms of the, the, the mitzvah that I connect to and the work that I do is I really, mm-hmm. really believe that we could get to a place where people automatically go and seek out information on how to be married. Um, I think that strong marriages can contribute so much to the world. And um, I think that it could be so easy for us to have this cultural shift of you get married and you start learning whether I don't, my course, great. Someone else's course, great. But just this idea that we go into it knowing that there's something to be learned so that we can avoid all this resentment that could be built up early on. We don't have to backtrack and deal with all this stuff, but we like come in and, um, and we can appreciate each other so much more when we understand each other better. So I right. think in my little, in my little Daladamos, that's what I would say. That's beautiful. That's a very powerful statement. Strong marriages is what contributes to the world. There's a strong foundation and then that affects the way you are with your children and affects the way you are in your workspace and how you interact with everybody else. It's really it's the foundation. Beautiful. Kayla, tell us where people can find you. Okay. So the podcast is called First Year Married. That's I-E-D. And Mm -hmm. that is on all major podcast players. So you just have to plug that in and you'll see it. Um, And I'm on Instagram at First Year Married if you're there. And I try to keep things pretty Mm -hmm. organized. Firstyearmarried.com is the website. Great. First year married. And again, as you said before, you don't have to have your first year in order to listen to a podcast or take your courses. You can be married for like 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is. Yeah. Sometimes women will just say like, I want to do this again. I need another Shana Rishona. I'm like, it's amazing. Very inspiring. Yes. A hundred percent. I highly recommend all of you who are listening to this to check out our podcast, check out our website and Kayla, you're doing amazing things for Clarissa L and for the entire world. And thank you, thank you so, so much. much for being on my show. Thank, thank, you, thank you. you. So great to If you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more soul sessions, you can go on SinaiRadio.com or type in Sinai Radio on all major podcast players and you can see a whole bunch of other soul sessions. And if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at Soul Train KK. Have a wonderful day.